Welcome to Cherry Beckert's GovCom podcast, where we discuss current government contracting trends, compliance matters, and best practices to guide federal contractors forward. My name is Eric Poppy. I'm a senior manager in our government contract services group with Cherry Beckert. And with me today is Ryan Bradle, a partner at Warden Barry. Ryan, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I'm glad you're here. And, you know, today we are talking about, we're actually giving a, a legal update uh, that we thought would be relevant to a lot of our uh, to government contractors, and um, looking forward to discussing these court cases with you today. Yeah, me too. Uh, discussing court cases is uh, one of my favorite things. Yeah, <laughs> I like to like to break them down and uh, give folks some takeaways so that they can avoid uh, becoming part of uh, the the next court case. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we all want to avoid any issues when it comes to legal matters with the government. Um, and I know that we have three cases that we wanted to outline today that relate to protests, some um, solicitation requirements, and then a, co- a case that was actually settled that has a relation to a fraud. Um, and today we're gonna be going through giving a brief description and then a major takeaway. So, you know, let's just jump right in, Ryan. Do you wanna um, lead off with the the pre-award protest case that you had brought to my attention? Yeah, sure, sounds good. Um, so there's actually two uh, pre-award protest cases that I wanted to discuss today. Um, and the reason why I wanted to focus on pre-award protests is because I think that they're they're really an underutilized tool in the toolbox for a lot of contractors. Uh, you know, it's very, very common thing that I hear when a contractor comes to me after they've lost an award and, you know, we're talking through what, what might have gone wrong and considering whether to file a protest and you know, let's say, oh, well, this provision in the uh, solicitation doesn't make sense and we should we should protest that. And I, you know, my response is always, well, it's too late. You, ha- you have to file your pre-award protest before the proposal goes in. So that's the overarching uh, concept that we want to get across today and, and then, let's, you know, break it down a little bit in these two cases. Um, the first case is a GAO bid protest uh, called Kronos Solutions. Uh, and this was one where the protester, the contractors who protested, uh, actually were successful in bringing uh, a pre-award protest and showing that there were problems with the solicitation. Um, if I can, you know, put in one sentence uh, what the GAO's finding here was, is that the terms of the solicitation were not reasonable in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so one of the key takeaway messages here is uh, to be aware of uh, practical realities and what's going on in the world and how that might affect your solicitation. Uh, so let me break it down a little bit more. Uh, the issue here in this protest uh, was whether the terms of the solicitation accurately reflected the agency's needs in light of the fact that the agency's needs had uh, we're, we're going to be substantially affected by the pandemic. Uh, the solicitation at issue was the Department of Housing and Urban Development had uh, issued a solicitation for contractors to provide mortgage insurance servicing and asset management of foreclosed properties. And so the contractors, the, the potential offerors were looking at the solicitation and they said, wait a second, the, the terms of the solicitation, the, the scope of work doesn't really make sense based on what we know is happening uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. 
the solicitation showed that HUD had failed to take into account um, some of the provisions of the CARES Act. And I, I think everyone knows that the CARES Act was the government's you know, wide ranging response uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic. But the protesters said, look, this doesn't make sense because the CARES Act says that uh, that there's going to be forbearance on uh, on mortgage payments. And so the volume of work that we're going to have to do is going to be very low initially because there's going to be no foreclosures. There's going to be forbearance. But then once that forbearance period expires, there's going to be a massive spike in the number of uh, foreclosures and, and other issues that the contractors were going to have to deal with. And so they were looking at the solicitation and they said, the way that the solicitation describes the, the scope of work and the level of effort that we're going to have to undertake during these different periods just doesn't make sense. It doesn't take into account uh, what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic and, and, and the CARES Act in response. And so the GAO agreed and they said, they, they said yeah, these, these protesters have, have made a good argument that the agency didn't properly consider what the agency's actual needs are. Mm. Um, so that was the that was the the core finding of that case. And and you know an interesting couple interesting pieces there is that affects your technical proposal and your approach to meeting the solicitation statement of work. And also that that has a major impact in potential pricing too, depending on the contract type. And um, so that that's very interesting there. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And I, you know, I think the, the key takeaway here uh, is when your company is considering a solicitation, you know, you're reviewing the terms and you're, you're preparing your proposal, very important to think about whether the solicitation makes sense in light of what you know about the practical realities of the work to be done. I mean, contractors are very often uh, the, the, the true experts in, in a particular area, in a particular industry. Um, you know, in government contracts, the customer is not always right. And you know, what I mean by that is the customer, that, that is the government, doesn't always know best what its needs are. Uh, so I think it's the, the takeaway here is that it's really important for a contractor to look at a solicitation and say, you know, wait a second, the government thinks it wants this, but what it actually needs is this. And, you know, and whether that's the the technical solution that you're offering or, or maybe it's just something as simple as the level of the level of effort and how that's going to be spread out over a certain time period i think contractors should not be afraid to look at a solicitation and say wait a second you know the government has this wrong let's go back to the government and try to get them to prepare the solicitation uh, in a way that that makes a little bit more sense and you know, to add to that, if say that this this protest did not happen and the company um, responded in one, and if there is if if there isn't clear expectations and uh, and considerations when it comes to pandemic or the you know does this make sense like you're saying that could impact your performance you know that could give you a bad CPARS rating that could that could hit you know, affect you way down the line as well with even trying to get follow-on contracts or similar contracts with agencies or if you're trying to get into another agency and use that past performance. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, 
I think too often contractors take the attitude of, you know, they, they're, they're so eager to get that next contracting to get that work, which, which is a good thing, but they don't stop and think about, wait, how, how are we going to perform what the government's asking for here? And so that, that's where they get into trouble is, you know, they, they know that what the government's asking for is not exactly right, but they don't speak up and say something about it. And then they find themselves in a, in a situation where what the government has asked for is is impossible or, or very difficult and very costly for them to uh, for the contractor to perform. And so that's why I think it's just very important that contractors you know take a minute and think about the solicitation critically and think about whether it's exactly what the government needs and then you know whether the contractor truly can can perform it because. As you said, you know, if, if performance doesn't go well, it can be very expensive. It can affect your CPARs and, you know, and have a, a long-term negative effect on your company. Definitely. So I think that that's a perfect segue into the next case. Do you want to jump into that one? Sure. Yeah. So this this next case um, deals with the timeliness of pre-award protests. Uh, this is another uh, GAO bid protest case. And in this case, the, uh, the protester was IBM, big company. Everybody's heard of it. Um, and this case is, uh, you know, pretty, uh, had a pretty complicated procedural history. Uh, there were, uh, an award was made to another company, not IBM, you know, IBM protested. Uh, they actually, that, that protest was sustained and the government took corrective action and IBM protested the corrective action. Uh, and again, that was sustained. And so we're on our, you know, third round of, of protest uh, here on this this one contract. Uh, but what happened was that IBM in its third round, it, you know, realized or, or at least it chose at that point to bring up ambiguities in the solicitation. Um, and the government moved to dismiss that portion of the protest saying that, it was too late for IBM to protest ambiguities in the solicitation, uh, and the GAO agreed. The GAO agreed said that that uh, you know IBM had its chance in its first protest to protest issues in the solicitation, um, and so it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a new nuance on a rule that that every contractor should know, um, which is that any issues with the solicitation must be filed, the protest must be filed before uh, proposals go in. After proposals go in, it's too late to protest any issue with the solicitation. But it also, you know, another little layer of this too is, is ambiguities in the solicitation, right? It's, it's obvious um, when, you know, sometimes it's obvious that the that the government just has a problem in its solicitation. Sometimes it's less obvious when there's a particular uh, request or provision or part of a solicitation that's ambiguous and that can be read in multiple ways. And what the GAO made clear here was that if there is any ambiguity in the solicitation that can be read multiple ways, you know the contractor needs to bring that up right away and it can't go back and protest when the government takes an interpretation of the ambiguity you know if there's an ambiguity there's maybe two or three different ways to interpret it and if the government takes you know one interpretation 
it's too late for the protester to you know, go back and protest the interpretation that the government has taken. So I think the, you know, the takeaway here is if you, if you see any ambiguity in the solicitation, don't roll the dice and hope that the government is going to take the interpretation that you're taking and hope that the government, you know, that, that it's going to come out on uh, the right way. There's something ambiguous. Uh, it's important to raise your hand um, and either ask a question, you know, it's always best to address ambiguities through dialogue with the government. But if the government is unable to resolve that ambiguity through dialogue, uh, then it's it's time to file a pre-award protest. So, yeah, because that could flow through and that, again, impacts your approach to potentially the, uh, the, the technical proposal again and also pricing to those ambiguities, you know, piggyback from what we said the first time as well. Uh, that could impact scoring criteria if you're now if the proposal is a scorecard approach. Yeah, um, that definitely hits a lot. Um, you know, That's right. so question for you, you know, a lot most pretty much in in responding to a solicitation, there's that Q and A period that you know all questions need to be submitted by X date. Right. Um, what do you have any thoughts about timing of when these uh, questions, if you're going to raise it, needs to be into the government? Uh, and then, like, what is that timing for what you typically would see for when that protest needs to be filed by? Sure. Yeah. So it's a good question. There's a there's a lot of elements to it. Um, you know, the the solicitation will always have a deadline for for questions for Q and A, and and obviously you want to meet that deadline. Um, but um, there's there's nothing wrong with trying to engage in informal dialogue with the government sometimes too. Now, they may not be willing to engage in informal dialogue with you, and that that can raise issues of uh, unequal discussions with with offerors uh, and you know sort of an unfairness but um it, you know it is uh you know not totally out of the question to just raise uh, you know an informal question with the contracting officer and say wait did you really mean this or did you mean this and just yeah. to get you know clarification on a provision then usually the contracting officer will forward that you know whatever the response is to all the offerors to, to keep it fair um, so anyway, the, the point is, is, you know, the government, uh, it's Q and a can take a lot of different forms, but, but don't be afraid of, of some informal dialogue just to get clarification on something. Um, as to the question of, you know, when the pre-award protest will be filed, the only real meaningful deadline is the pre-award protest has to go in before, uh, the deadline for proposals. That said, uh, you know, I do recommend filing as early as possible. You know, if, if you just sit on it and don't uh, and, you know, and wait until the last minute, um, you're less likely to be able to uh, find resolution with with the government. I think if you go in early, it might be possible that they will take corrective action without having to uh, actually reach a decision at the GAO. And so, and that, that's a, that's a better outcome for, for everybody. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, while, while the deadline is, is, uh, the deadline for proposals, I'll recommend filing your, your pre-award protest as early as you can. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, we, at Terry Becker, we've helped many clients with the cost proposals and putting those together. And, you know, we always read the solicitation and, you know, we, when we read like maybe some ambiguities in the in the text, and we ask the client like, "Hey, did you did you follow up with the government on this?" They go, "Oh no, we we missed the the Q and A 
deadline. Um, but it seems like a lot of times contractors might be scared to have that informal conversation um, for exactly the reason why you were talking a moment ago. So right. that's, that's, that's really awesome to hear that, um, you know, you still should try and attempt and probably document that as well. Um, yeah, that's so, right. Okay. And, well, and let me, uh, you know, interject a little point there too, is that if you do miss the Q&A deadline, that will not prevent you from filing a pre-award protest. So that's that's a that's a good thing to know. You know, I mean, obviously you want to meet the Q&A deadline and you, you want to abide by, um, you know, all, all of the deadlines and any solicitation. But but if you do miss the Q&A for whatever reason, you can still engage in informal discussions with with the government and then file a pre-award protest if necessary. That's a great point. Um, and I know we're we're coming up on time here, so I want to make sure we hit that last case that we want to talk about. Yep. Um, do you want to jump into the fraud case? Yeah, so let's uh, let's jump into that one. Um, so this is a, a, a recent settlement that the DOJ settled with a uh, a company that was a service disabled veteran owned company, an SDVOSB. And from 2007 to 2013, they received 14 uh, federal contracts set aside for small businesses owned by SDVOSBs. Uh, so, you know, typical SDVOSB set aside situation. Um, but what happened was, is that the company that received the contracts, it was a company called Kadena, um, was actually ineligible for those contracts because, uh, first of all, that the, the service disabled veteran didn't actually own and control the company. So they had a service disabled veteran that ostensibly owned and controlled the company that they put forward as the as the service sale veteran. But in reality, the company's day to day operations were being run by an executive of another larger company. Um, and, and there's no you know, there's no real indication that there was a lot of uh, mal intent here. Um, really, what was going on was that the service disabled veteran that that owned Kadena um, was was you know kind of at the the tail end of his career and, and looking at retirement and and you know was just hoping to have some help in in running his company day to day and and so was you know was partnering with this other larger company. Um, so, but the DOJ found that the larger company was actually running the service-disabled veteran-owned company, and that the larger company's employees were were doing a lot of the work. And so, the the DOJ found that um, that that Kadena was was actually ineligible for all of the set-aside contracts that it got, you know, for that reason. And uh, the settlement that the DOJ reached with the company was was for two and a half million dollars. So. You know, not a, not a small amount of money for for a small company, um, and it just goes to show that you know sometimes you can have the the best of intentions, but if you're not being careful and monitoring your compliance with the small business set aside programs, it can be very expensive for your company. Yeah, that that impacts large and small, and you know, potential teaming partners. Um, I'm thinking of. You know, maybe large large businesses that have sub small business subcontracting plans and how that could impact them. Do you Absolutely. have any suggestions on how you would, uh, you know, vet potential um, potential business partners who are small businesses after this case? And just hearing that 
the, you know, the, that ownership structure and how that actually played out? Sure. Um, I mean, the, the suggestion is, is, is to do an audit, um, either of your own company or, or if there's another company that you're going to be teaming with to ask them to submit to an audit, uh, to make sure that all of the arrangements that are being made are consistent with the rules. Um, and it, it's, it, you know, it wouldn't be a terribly expensive exercise for, you know, a firm like yours, Eric, or, or like my firm, uh, you know, to, to jointly work on an audit like this together. It, you know, it really just involves uh, reviewing the, the corporate documents, reviewing the arrangements, whether it's a teaming arrangement or joint venture or whatever the case may be with, with another company, with any other company. And then just getting an understanding of, of how the contract is actually being performed, which, which employees of which company are working on the contract and, and who's really calling the shots. That, that's, that, that was, that's what an audit would look like. And that's, that's what we would undertake um, if asked to do an audit. But, you know, it can be really, really important. I think, you know, again, as this case shows, uh, I don't think anybody involved in that case was was really trying to do anything wrong. They they weren't trying to defraud the government. They were just trying to perform the contracts and 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 provide the expertise that was needed to perform those contracts. But unfortunately, in doing so, they didn't abide by the rules, uh, and it and it cost them. So so I think the takeaway here is that. Um, you know, even when you think you're abiding by the rules, you may not be. And so it's very important that you have, uh, you know, anytime you're performing a set aside contract and there's another company involved, it's very important, uh, that you have a, uh, a legal or accounting professional review the arrangement and make sure that it meets the requirements. Yeah. I I'm thinking there's been a lot of, uh, emphasis over the last couple of years of more subcontractor monitoring and more of an emphasis too on uh, purchasing systems and how do you select your potential partners and the vetting process and justification. And right. it's a small business or even like an other than small, you know, you just graduated, you're very eager to, to try to probably team with certain partners to go right. be more competitive towards certain solicitations, but taking the time to really understand who you're partnering with um, or performing some type of internal audit like you're suggesting or having outside assistance from you know firms like ourselves help out really becomes more important so you can show that you are crossing your t's and dotting your i's when it comes to working with these partners yeah that's exactly right like i always say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure you know it's it's better to spend fifty thousand dollars on the front end than two point five million on the back end if if things don't work out. Very true. Very true. Um, well, I know we are right up against um, our time limit for today. Uh, so, any closing thoughts, Ryan, or do you want to give a, a quick overview of, of your practice? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I'll, I'll do a very brief overview of my practice. Um, you know, we're a law firm that specializes in representing government contractors, and we provide a broad range of services to government contractors from uh, compliance, uh, legal audits, uh, litigation, disputes with primes and subs, and then uh, interface with the government, um, you know, negotiating contracts, uh, providing uh, regulatory advice on how to comply with uh, with government contracts, and then handling uh, disputes with uh, with the government. So bid protests, REAs, claims, 
Uh, so very typical government contracts practice. Um, but, you know, also uh, really enjoy having an opportunity to have some thought leadership and, uh, and, and engage in conversations like the one we had today to, to try to help contractors uh, have, a, have a more successful business. Well, thank you, Ryan. I'm really glad that you're able to join us today. And thanks for giving that quick overview since we didn't do that in the beginning. Um, and I hope I want to thank everyone tuning in today, uh, listening to the GovCom podcast. And uh, please join us next time when we talk about a few rules that are coming down um, from the federal government that will impact government contractors. And Ryan, thanks again. Thank you, Eric. Great to be with you.